Thank you, Kevin. Good morning. For those who don't know me, my name is Mark Forstrom, and I'm one of the members uh, here at Trinity. If you're a visitor and you didn't catch it earlier, this isn't a typical service because Pastor Isaac isn't here today. Uh, we're missing his gifted preaching and leading us in communion. So I do encourage you to come back for the full experience another week. In his absence, it's my humble privilege to bring today's sermon. So we are currently in the midst of uh, the church calendar season that we call Advent, which literally means coming in the Latin language. And many churches, including us here at Trinity, become a tradition to set aside the four Sundays prior to Christmas as a time to focus our hearts and our minds on the anticipation of Christ's coming to earth to rescue us. Advent symbolically takes us back to the time just prior to Jesus' birth, when the broken, confused, and bewildered nation of Israel was desperately awaiting God's rescue and redemption. Anticipation, hope, longing, expectation, these are the emotions that people felt before Jesus arrived, and these are the emotions that we still are feeling in anticipation of Jesus' second coming. So the season of Advent makes sense to celebrate. Isaac has chosen to call this year's Advent sermon series, The Weary World Rejoices. Anyone know where that phrase comes from? It's a song that we sing. Oh, holy night, the weary world rejoices. It's a great summary of what Advent really is all about. Each week, during these four weeks, we're looking at various songs and declarations and prophecies that were made regarding Jesus' arrival. Last week, Isaac unpacked Mary's Magnificat, the song that Mary sang at the Annunciation. Over the remaining two Sundays of Advent, the next two weeks, Kyle and Isaac will explore the accounts of Jesus' birth and the angels' declarations that are found in Luke chapter 2. But today, we're going to take a slight deviation from the direct Christmas story. We're actually going to go back in time a few months to look at a prophecy, which Kevin just read, uh, that was made by one of Jesus' relatives, a priest named Zechariah. Before we jump into our text, let me say a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you today humbly in anticipation of what you have to teach us today. I pray that as we look into your word and as we look at the life of Zechariah, that we will learn some things about you, learn some things about us, and learn some things about one another, and mostly about your sovereign plan throughout history. I pray that today we would discover something that we need to take away. Be with me, and Lord, speak in spite of my words. Uh, I ask that your Holy Spirit speak to hearts in this room what needs to be said, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the sermon text, which Kevin read, printed in the bulletin, is Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 80. But actually, before looking at that text, I want to back up a little bit further. I want to describe what was going on 
prior to this prophecy being given. I want to give it some context. In fact, we're, we're going to spend most of our time today, I think, looking at what led up to the words that Kevin read. First of all, some background. Who is this Zechariah? We don't know a lot about him, except for what we learn about in the Gospel of Luke. At the beginning of Luke chapter 1, we learn that he was a Jewish priest living in or near Jerusalem, serving at the temple just prior to the birth of Christ. We also know that his wife's name is Elizabeth. She's a relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Last week, Isaac talked about Mary's three-month stay at Zechariah and Elizabeth's house. But that's as far as we've gotten. So today we continue. So here's a trivia question. Dan, you like trivia, I know. Um, exactly how are Mary and Elizabeth related? Were they first cousins? I always kind of thought that. I always looked at you know, Mary and Elizabeth, they're, they're cousins. Well, that was my impression, but that may not be necessarily true. The only clue we're given is found in Luke 1.36, where Gabriel, who is speaking to Mary, we read this last week, he mentions to Mary, your cousin, or your, sorry, your relative, Elizabeth. That's all we know. The word relative is the Greek word sugenis, which has been translated in various ways. The old King James translated this word as cousin, marry your cousin. But back in 1611, the word cousin had a little different meaning than it has today. A little broader back in 1611. Today, cousin specifically means to us in this culture, the offspring of your aunt or uncle. Other translations have translated the word, the, the Greek word sugenis as kinswoman. The most modern translations simply say relative, which is probably best keeping it broad. Another fact about the relationship between Mary and Elizabeth is that Mary was of the tribe of Judah. The line of David came through Judah. But Zechariah and Elizabeth were both of the tribe of Levi. So that indicates that they had to have been somewhat distant cousins. But not too distant, because Mary understood what Gabriel meant when he said, Elizabeth, your relative. So it was in the proximity of her awareness. And I suppose the best indication that they were not too distant of relatives is the fact that Mary lived with them for three months. You don't invite a complete stranger into your home for three months. So there was some... Uh, somewhat close relationship between them, but we don't know exactly what that looks like. So, enough cousin trivia. Back to Zechariah. He's married to Elizabeth. We don't know how long they'd been married. We only know that Elizabeth had been barren, and that they were advanced in years, and now they were well beyond childbearing age. By the way, I, I, did the, I checked with the Guinness Book of World Records, the current record for the oldest uh, woman conceiving naturally, I think, is uh, 59 years of age. So, uh, good chance that Elizabeth was about that age. Some of you are worried now, I know. Uh, <laughs> I thought we were done with that. Um, so, uh, they, were, they were advanced and older in age, and they were past childbearing age. 
they had longed for and prayed for a child, there was a lot of stigma back in the culture of the day. Uh, the, the women would feel this reproach upon them if they could not conceive. And uh, they'd been praying and prayed for a child and prayed for a child and prayed for a child, but God had seemingly answered no. That was their conclusion. They had given up hope. No more prayers were needed about that subject. God had said no. In truth, however, God's answer really was, wait, the yes is still to come. But they did not know that yet. Now let's look at Zechariah's priestly duties. Luke gives us insight here. Zechariah, we're told, was chosen by Lot. It's so interesting. He was chosen by Lot to burn incense. In Luke 1.10, it calls at the time of incense burning. So they had some schedule, some regular uh, event called the, the time of incense burning. And so here Zechariah is chosen to do just that. Now, incense burning to us, is that's kind of a foreign concept. We don't really uh, do a lot of incense burning around here. Um, we, it's not part of the Trinity uh, liturgy, order of service. Uh, in fact, that might seem a little strange to us or kind of weird if we started burning incense. It's just not part of our tradition. But it might seem strange um, because, again, it's unfamiliar. And what do you think of when you think of incense burning? I think of maybe in the, in the, the flower children of the 60s and it's in the dark rooms, uh, burning incense. Um, you might think today we probably are thinking more about, uh, what do they call those things? Those, uh, uh, oh, those diffusers for uh, essential oils. <laughs> You know, that putting some therapeutic smells in the room to help, help us uh, with your anxiety or whatever, right? Those are the kind of things that we might think about with incense. That's not what this is talking about. God's temple design incorporated an altar of incense on which the priest would burn sweet-smelling incense as a pleasing aroma to God. God apparently took pleasure in this act of obedience, a ritual, specifically prescribed burning of incense. There's something about um, that that made uh, this part of God's design for temple worship very interesting, but very foreign to us today. There's also a really interesting and I think noteworthy connection between incense burning and prayer. Revelation 5.8 describes the bowls of incense. Remember the bowls? And he calls them the prayers of the saints. 1 Timothy 2 says that our prayers for others are pleasing to the Lord. So it's clear that prayer and the burning of incense, there's some connection. And, and you know what? It, it makes sense from a standpoint of just a metaphor. One can easily imagine the prayers of the saints drifting heavenward filling the room, just as the smoke from incense would drift heavenward, filling the room. There's something beautiful about that picture, that the incense and the prayers is something that God enjoys, something that brings delight to him. So Luke 1.10 says this, when the time for burning of incense came, get this, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So here Zechariah is arriving at the temple on his assigned 
day, at the time of incense burning, and the people have gathered outside to pray, and Zechariah is about to enter the temple to pray and to, to burn incense. It says he was chosen by Lot. This is a rare privilege. He was chosen by Lot, according to Luke 1.9. We're told nothing about how often this priestly uh, privilege uh, came around. It's possible that this only happened once in a lifetime. It was a special, a special thing to be chosen by Lot to offer the incense. Think of the enormous weight of responsibility for Zechariah. His duty was to offer up the fragrant incense, according to specifications, and to offer up prayers on behalf of the people of Israel. As we mentioned, a, a crowd of them were outside praying as he was going inside. When he was finished, the crowd would be waiting for him to come out and to, to speak to them, maybe give them a message of some sort. Now, as I was thinking about this. What do you suppose Zechariah would be praying about as he's receiving his tour of duty in the temple. What was he praying about? It would be easy to guess, not too hard. The Roman occupation was oppressive. His people were suffering. Their own king, Herod the Great, was a cruel tyrant. The long-awaited Messiah was missing in action, hadn't shown up. God had been oddly silent for 400 years. That's a long time, 400 years since God had last spoken to his people. Misery, confusion, desperation, disillusionment. That had to be what the Jews were feeling at the time. That had to be the felt needs that Zechariah took with him into the temple that day. Surely these national concerns would have been the subject of his prayers. What is certain is that he would not have spent his time in the temple praying for his wife to get pregnant. That ship had sailed. They'd given up on that quest long ago. God already answered those prayers, and the answer was no. I don't believe there was any chance in the world that, that Zechariah was thinking about his barren wife during this important time of representing his people before the altar of incense, before the throne of God. So it's very surprising what happened next in the story. The angel Gabriel suddenly and unexpectedly appears in the midst of the temple, right next to the altar of incense. Zechariah, as you would be and as I would be, was terrified. Angels in the Bible are not like the little cherubs that we picture in our little children's books. Angels are more warriors and uh, more uh, intimidating and larger than life. So it makes sense that Zechariah is terrified. So after calming him down and saying, do not be afraid, Gabriel delivers a special message to him. Gabriel says this, Zechariah, your prayer has been answered. Your wife is about to get pregnant. What? <laughs> that's, that's not the prayer that uh, I'm sure was forefront on Zechariah's mind as he was in there offering incense. To Zechariah, this response must have seemed very out of date. He hadn't prayed for years, and he'd already gotten that no for an answer. But Gabriel's got more to say. 
I'm also here to tell you, Zechariah, that not only are your long-awaited prayers answered, but the prayers of your people are being answered too. Through this same son of yours I just told you about. Your baby is going to grow up to be the one to turn people's hearts back to the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He's the forerunner who will be ready and who will make ready the people for the coming Messiah. The wait is over. Whoa. This was not just big news. This was the biggest news in 400 years. This was not just the breaking news of the headline of, of the week, of the month. This was like the headline of four centuries. Zechariah had just been told something amazing. But dear Zechariah got distracted by something. He missed the greatest news of his generation. We might say he was experiencing technical difficulties because this wonderful plan included his old wife, Elizabeth, becoming pregnant. In fact, he might not even heard the plan altogether because he might have gotten sidetracked by this news. Your wife is going to have a baby. Like, that was monumental in Zechariah's life. But he was skeptical about it. He didn't believe it. He doubted Gabriel's words, and it brought to him a harsh consequence. This is what Gabriel said. He said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah's words of skepticism would be the last words that he would utter for nine months and eight days. From then on, he became mute, unable to speak. When he came out of the temple, he couldn't even give a report to the waiting crowd. He had no voice. Now, can you imagine being unable to speak for nine months and eight days? That's a long time. We have things to say. <laughs> We, we like to communicate, we like to share, we like to express, we like to emote. None of that was possible for Zechariah. So many things you'd like to say, but you can't. Maybe some of you have had laryngitis for a short time, or you've had some kind of a, a throat disability or vocal cord impairment. It's frustrating, it's frustrating. I wonder how often he pondered those last words of skepticism and second-guessed himself. What was going through his mind? Oh, what a fool was I? How, did I? how did I not believe God in the moment when he sent an angel? What was I thinking? How long will my voice be gone? What, what was that the angel said? I'd be mute until the day these things take place? What does that mean exactly? Will I get my voice back when my son is born? Will, will it be when the Messiah arrives? When the people are delivered? When salvation is purchased and, and, and attained? Will I ever get my voice back? And if my voice does come back, well, what should be the first thing that I would say? Those would be questions that I would be thinking about during those nine months and eight days of silence. 
Well, the story continues. Elizabeth does indeed get pregnant. How cool is that? Then comes this house guest to stay with them for three months. Elizabeth's not-too-distant relative, Mary. Then Mary leaves, great with child. Then Elizabeth's baby is born. So exciting. It had to have been surreal. Now it's eight days later. It's circumcision day. It's also baby naming day. There's a crowd of neighbors gathered around. It feels like, probably feels like an Iowa caucus in this moment. Those voting for Zechariah seem to be in the lead. They've got the biggest group over here. They're trying to figure out what's this baby going to be named. Zechariah interrupts. He stops the caucus. <laughs> he brings the caucus to an end. He asks for a writing tablet, and he writes. His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke. He wrote, his name is John, his tongue was loosened, and he spoke. What's he going to say? What would we expect to be the first word spoken after nine months of silence? I know what I'd say. Woohoo! I got my voice back! <laughs> oh, well, me, 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 me! Like, hey, I can talk. I got lots to say. Everybody, you ready? Everybody get around, right? That's what I would do <laughs> if I'd been completely mute for nine months and eight days and I got my voice back. But that's not what Zechariah did. He thought about this. Well, this brings us, finally, to our text today. Please turn to Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 67, which is printed in your bulletin. It's called Zechariah's Prophecy. Some places it's called the Song of Zechariah. Some, the Catholics, I think, call it the, the Canticle of Zechariah. But regardless, these are the words that the Holy Spirit gave to Zechariah. In verse 67, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Okay, we're about to get it. The words are coming. But let's pause there just for a second before the first word comes out. For 400 years, the people of Israel had been crying out for God's rescue, which never came. Things are getting worse and worse. It must have seemed like God's answer was no, in the exact same way that Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayers seemed to have been answered with a no. Hope was dwindling, maybe gone. God was silent, but that was about to change. In a beautifully poetic way, the 400 years of God's silence was about to end at the exact same time as Zechariah's nine months and eight days of silence. Just as Gabriel announced to Zechariah his wait was over, now Zechariah gets to announce to the people of Israel that the wait is over for them, too. The silence is shattered. 
So listen to what comes out of Zechariah's mouth. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, something about these two verses. Notice the verb tense. It says, he has visited, he has raised up. So here he speaks of future events as if they've already happened. He's so sure of their certainty. God has visited and redeemed his people. Now the, the phrase, the horn of salvation, might be a little unfamiliar. Horn refers to strength and might, and so this strong salvation is coming. God is raising up this salvation. And the house of his servant David, that, that reminds us that the Messiah was promised to come through the line of David, a descendant of David. This announcement tells the people it's really happening. God is answering those prayers. Then he continues, verse 70, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. For centuries, the prophets had foretold the deliverance that would be coming eventually to the people of Israel. The time of fear and frustration is coming to an end. God's covenant has not been forgotten. It remains intact. The Messiah will make all things right, and we will be able to serve him without impediment. It's a beautiful message. It's a national message of hope. And then, Zechariah's message takes a turn. He no longer addresses the, the crowd, the people, the, the caucusers that are listening. He now addresses his own son, the newborn son who has just been circumcised and who has just been named John, whom the world will someday know as John the Baptist. John's life calling has been prearranged, and Zechariah is about to make a pronouncement. Verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Notice how the focus has shifted now from national security to personal security. John is the voice calling out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. A modern analogy might be this. John is like an early morning snowplow after a long storm. John has been sent out to pave the way for the Lord Jesus to come 
night is ending, the sun is rising, we discover there's a path before us. It's a road. It's a way. We're on the move again. We're no longer stuck. In fact, this is the way out. This is the way forward. This path is going to bring life where there was death, salvation where there was doom, forgiveness where there was guilt, mercy where there was judgment. That's where the prophecy ends. Luke tells us nothing more about Zechariah from that point on. But as for John, verse 80 tells us this, the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. I enjoyed preparing for this message. I'm privileged that Isaac asked me to fill in. In the process of putting this together, I found really some very interesting parallels and contrasts that I'd never noticed before in all the times I've read this, this passage. So I'm just going to share with you some of the parallels and the contrasts. Zechariah had a longing for a son. Israel had a longing for a rescuer. Zechariah prayed, perhaps for four decades. Israel prayed for four centuries. For Zechariah, God delayed answering until all hope was gone. For Israel, God delayed 400 years until hope probably seemed gone for them as well. God's silence to Zechariah was shattered by Gabriel. God's silence to Israel was shattered by a mute priest who could suddenly speak. The silence was shattered. So there we have it. Cool story. Fun comparisons. Bouncing baby. Wrinkly parents. Happy ending. So what? What do we do with this? What's the point of the story for us? Well, several things that we could take away from today's passage. First of all, we must not doubt God's promises, even if they seem impossible. If God says it will be, it will be, regardless of our feelings, regardless of our timetable, regardless of what we think God should be up to. Do not doubt God's promises. Secondly, it's okay to have longings and bring them to God. Zechariah did. We should too. Israel did. We should too. God delights in our delight. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, James tells us, from the Father of the heavenly lights. It's okay to have longings. It's okay to have desires. It's okay to want things and to ask God for those things. Third, when God seems silent, and he often does, don't despair. We want answers now, don't we? <laughs> we hate waiting. I don't know about you, I hate waiting. I hate it more and more. I hate that I hate waiting, but I hate waiting. I get frustrated when a web page takes five seconds to load. Five seconds, I get frustrated. That's crazy. 
All of us are ADHD, <laughs> impatient, in a rush, easily distracted. God is none of those things. He hasn't developed a short attention span. So it's likely his timetable is very different than ours. Fourth, during silence, don't rush to conclude God's answer is no. We need patience. God's answer may very well be, wait, the yes is coming. And so we have to consider that. If God doesn't answer us immediately, it may not be that he's saying no. It may be, wait. Keep the faith. Keep asking. Be persistent. And trust me. So what is it that you're waiting on God to do? What are you longing for? What burden is heavy on your heart today? Perhaps you struggle with infertility, like Zechariah and Elizabeth. Maybe, like Cindy and myself, you'll love someone who is being self-destructive, or struggling with their identity, or have serious mental or physical conditions. It's a burden to you. It weighs on you. It's heavy on your heart. Maybe you yourself have some of those same struggles. Maybe you're facing employment challenges or ethical dilemmas at work. Perhaps you're having a hard time making ends meet. You're not sure how you're going to make it. We have longings. We have longings. The world is not right. Perhaps like Cindy and I, you're burdened by loved ones who reject God and are headed for destruction, seemingly. Perhaps you're burdened by the condition of the world we live in. Even some of the things that Kyle prayed about in his prayer. The shootings, the violence, the politics, the mandates, the threats of losing freedom, the censorship of ideas, the xenophobia, the hatred toward others, the fighting of hatred with more hatred, which makes no sense, the moral and ethical scandals, even within Christendom. The progressive liberalism creeping into evangelicalism. The list can go on and on. We live in a broken world and we have longings. The good news is that God is big enough for each of these needs. He's promised to never leave us or forsake us. He is for us, not against us. He is able. His job is to act. Our job is to ask and wait patiently. We won't like the waiting, but wait we must. Sometimes for years. Sometimes we say a prayer and it takes years. Sometimes it takes decades before God answers. I got an example from this week. It was past Tuesday. I got a surprising Facebook message from someone that Cindy and I have prayed for for 25 years. Message came out of the blue. We met this gal as a young woman at BioLife Plasma, or plasma donors. Um, and this gal worked there as a childcare worker watching our then preschool girls. That's how we got to know this, this woman. She took care of our kids 
at BioLife. While we were donating plasma, she was watching our kids. Well, soon she got promoted, and now she's a phlebotomist. And we often had conversations with her about life and about faith as she's sticking needles into our arms. Talk about captive audience. I don't know if she was more captive or if we were more captive, but we were strapped down and she's sticking needles in our arms and we're having wonderful conversations. And she's distraught. We learned that she was unhappy, anxious, a non-believer with a struggling marriage. So we started praying for her and we started telling her we're praying for you. We prayed for her salvation, we prayed for her marriage, we prayed for her kids. After many years, we kind of lost touch because she changed jobs, but we kept praying. She's still on my prayer list today. We'd bump into her from time to time, and we got some snippets, some good news snippets. Things seemed to be a little bit encouraging. In fact, she eventually found a Bible-believing church. She gave her life to Christ, praise the Lord, got baptized, and started taking her family to church. God was answering those prayers. I hadn't talked to her for years. In this past Tuesday, she sent me this Facebook update. This is a quote. I just copied and pasted it. This is what she told me on Tuesday. Our marriage is now with God the way it's meant to be. We have a life group at church with four other married couples. We hold each other accountable and we do life together. Our four children are serving and worshiping God. And this is in all caps. God is good. Thank you for all the prayers, Mark. And she wanted me to tell Cindy. Right? 25 years praying for this gal. God was at work. Didn't always feel like it. So persevere in prayer. Don't give up. Perhaps God arranged her to send me that message as a sermon illustration for you today as a reminder to never give up, even if it takes 25 years. So that's the message from Zechariah. Before I end it, though, I've got one final word of caution that I need to say before I can conclude. Today's story focused on God answering Zechariah's prayer with the answer, wait, the yes is coming. That was how God answered that particular prayer of that particular person. It's a satisfying story. It's a happy ending. The couple gets pregnant. The prayer is answered. The diapers are being changed. Everyone's happy. Sometimes, though, that's not the way it plays out. And I need to say this, because we have to be realistic. Sometimes God answers with a no. And we have to be able to accept that when he does. Otherwise, we're in danger of drifting into the name it and claim it camp, the prosperity gospel, right? You ask it and God will give it to you. Name it and claim it, it's yours. It's yours for the taking. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to have everything you want. God wants to meet every desire of your heart. He wants you to be wealthy and healthy and prosperous and have good relationships and have no conflict in your life. That's what God wants for you because actually the message is you are God and God is here to serve you. That's not Christianity. That's called heresy. God is not a genie in a bottle his wish is not our command. Not the way it works. Yes, we should bring our longings to God. That's the right thing to do. 
but we must never presume what God's plan might be. We don't know everything. God does. His will may be different than our wishes. It's a possibility. It may not make sense to us at the time, but trusting God for things we don't understand, that's what our faith is all about. Trusting God, we walk by faith, not by sight. And in those occasions when God clearly answers with a no, we need to accept that. Just as we, we will accept the yeses and the wait, the yes is coming. Our understanding is limited. We are not God. So our longings must always be submitted to God's will. Thank you.